You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host, Will Nevin, and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How you doing tonight, Will? Oh, hey, heroes and freeloaders, I am doing well. It's a good night. I got energy to start. We'll see if we got energy to finish. Matt, my question for you tonight. Let's say we decide to blow off the show. And like, hey, let's just go watch some Star Trek. Give me one episode. Doesn't have to be the best episode, but your comfort food episode. What you putting on? Stupid. Ha! That's a good pick. I like that. I mean, there are other ones that are fun. You've not done DS9, but there's a whole thing where a hollow suite, they call them, they're, they're hollow suites there because they're not, you know, on a ship and they're not private. They're not public. They're private. They're owned by Quark, the bartender. And they're oh. for fucking. Yeah. One of the hollow suite characters develops sentience over the course of time. And he's, uh, uh they a, always do. He's a 50s Vegas lounge singer. I'm Maybe. vaguely familiar with the character. There's one episode towards the end of the series where it's basically an Oceans movie. It's a heist in the hollow casino. And I love a good heist story. While it also calls out the fact that, you know, they're trying to, they have to get everyone involved. And Cisco, Avery Brooks's character is kind of like, you know, a man who looked like me wouldn't have been allowed in a place like that in the 50s. Like, I was pleased that they kind of called that out and they addressed it because DS9 does play a lot with the fact they have a black captain and what that would have meant historically with episodes like Far Beyond the Stars as well with having a black man with authority. Killing me that I can't remember the name of that particular episode, but I know there are people that got kind of sick of the Vic Fontaine thing, but I always enjoyed it. And I love a good Oceans episode, but no... Cupid regularly still kills me every time I see it. Just Worf's whole thing throughout the entire... I am not a merry man! Yep. And when Jordy is trying to play the the lyre or the mandolin, I guess it is, and Worf just takes it, smashes the hell out of it. Sorry. And I liked Picard's back and forth with Vash, both times she shows up. But Vash would have been a pretty good like ending partner for Picard. Bev is fine. Uh, Loris is fine. Bash would be fine. Any strong female character, just like just like Bruce. Uh, Picard deserves someone his equal. Someone who'll challenge him and just not let him get away with being, you know, the great Admiral Jean-Luc Picard. It's like, no, someone he needs someone who's going to put him in his place. As you said, just like Bruce. What about you? What's your, your comfort track? Again, this is this is not best, right? If we're talking best, um, like you know, Chain of Command Part Two, Best uh, of Both Worlds Part One, yeah. But if I just want to have a good ass time, Starship Mine, yeah, fucking love that man. Picard just skulking around on the Enterprise, taking out space terrorists. Oh, it's so good. Another one, and this this is one of these episodes I completely accept. There are people who actively dislike this episode, but uh, Menage Troy, just for the end where Picard has to put on the jealous lover act to the Ferengi captain. It's That's just, pretty fun. That is an enjoyable episode. There's a, another DS9, another Hollow Suite episode, uh, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, where... Cisco's old, I think he was an academy rival who's a Vulcan captain. His ship is stopped on the station and it's the, the argument over logic versus passion. And they decide to settle it over a game of baseball on the hollow suite. And so you got to take a lot of gifts from that. I get it. There's people who think it's a little too silly, especially because you're at like the height of the Dominion War. So it's 
real dark times and let's take an episode off and have a baseball game in the hollow suite. But I think it's fun. And I think you needed that during those particularly dark times to be able to pull back from that and have a wacky episode. And, um, oh God, I always mix them up. I want to make sure I'm getting it right. The Naked Time, the TOS episode. Not The Naked Now. Right. I always mix up which one is which. I think that one is a lot of fun. Uh, the original Space Seed. Certainly, yes. we had the very best version of Khan. Both The Trouble with Tribbles and DS9's Trials and Tribulations. Uh, let's see. Any more, any more Q episodes? Deja Q, where he has no powers. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I think that period, Deja Q and Cupid, that's kind of peak you as a character versus Q as plot mover because so much of Farpoint and Tapestry and all good things yes I mean he's he's quirky and he's funny but he's there to serve the purpose of the story Mm -hmm. while in both Cupid and Deja Q he's there to interact with the other characters and not just deliver one-liners, especially Deja Q where he has no powers. Did you know there was a Q stinger that was cut from Picard season three? It was Jack Crusher going to his quarters on the G and there was Q. And he's like, I thought you were dead. And he's like, "Uh, what limited understanding of time you have? I think I might have seen that online somewhere because I've seen that. So it, it is existing somewhere out there. But that makes sense. I mean, he is a multi-dimensional being. Time does not mean to Q what it means to the rest of us. So you'd think if he was ending his existence, he would go back to Picard. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist in the future to beings who exist in a linear timeline and I'm going cross-eyed just thinking about time travel <laughs> because it's time travel and that's what it does. Bride of Chaotica from Voyager. Holodeck episodes are a good comfort food. Fistful of Data's. Not just bad. Elementary, my dear Data. Just, I mean, as a, a Sherlock person. Big Goodbye, the first real Holodeck episode is fine. Uh, is that the one where uh, Riker falls in love? No, that's the Dixon Hill one is the one I'm thinking of. Ah, yeah, that one's not bad. That's not bad, but it's very season one. Yeah. Season one is rough. Oh, boy. Is it ever. Most Star Treks are pretty rough in season one. I think there's one episode in season one of every one of these shows where it's like, oh, you're not. At least uh, until Strange New Worlds. Yeah, yeah. I believe Strange New Worlds hit a peak in season one. But I think Move Along Home in DS9, there's got to be a Voyager one. It's been a long time. I've rewatched DS9. I don't think I've ever done a real rewatch on Voyager. I probably should someday. It's a bunch of rough ones in next gen. Really, maybe hit the highlights of season three, but then really get it with season four. Season four is where it gets great. Yeah, because you got you got the drumhead, which is mm-hmm. an all time spectacular episode. Yeah, because I think season three, I think Deja Q is season three, because I think you get yeah, because season one is Farpoint and Hide and Q, two is Q Who, solid solid episode for Experience of the Borg, and then you got Deja Q in season three, and I, Cupid is a season four episode again. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if I sat here, I could I could keep rattling off episodes i mean if you want to just sit there and just be perplexed for an hour you can always watch bev fucks a ghost hey look i'm not here to uh yuck anybody's yum but uh that's a weird one yep before we move into the actual point of this episode because there is a point there is i do want to just take a break for a second because we are recording as we normally do on a wednesday and I just need to call something out because it is a very special day for me. Today oh. is my 15th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations, Matt. Thank you. 
And I just want to point out just how cool Amber is that it's, I was like, you know, it's our wedding anniversary. She's like, well, no, you, you, you got to record. You record on Wednesdays. We'll make a nice meal together beforehand. We'll eat and then you'll record. I appreciate my, my darling wife for knowing how important the podcast is to me and to you and to all of you out there listening. I think I've made it to uh, to about 13, but that's over three different marriages. So I don't think that counts. <laughs> but now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time for tonight's episode. Tonight's episode, we are reading three stories featuring one of the great Batman villains of the 80s who has stuck around and become a pretty major part of the Pantheon. Uh, we're talking Scarface and his dummies. Yeah, oh, I see what you did there. All right, so I'm going to be honest. I'm going to lay some truth down on you. Before today, before I sat down to do the readings, if you would have held a, a gat gun to my head and said, all right, is uh, Ventriloquist an original character to the animated series? I probably would have said yes. So I was surprised to see him in the 80s. Yeah. We're starting off with his first appearance. He does have a very animated series sort of vibe. The aesthetic very much fits the aesthetic of the animated series because he dresses like a 50s gangster, which with the animated series having that sort of nebulous timeline, I could completely see why you would have thought he was created there. But, but no, no, he was not. He was not. He was created in a story that we're calling Fever. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 583 and 584. The writers are Alan Grant and John Wagner, with pencils by Norm Brayfogle, inks by Kim DeMolder and Steve Mitchell, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are February and March of 1988. A new street drug, Fever, is burning its way through Gotham's children. Batman's investigation leads him to a new foe, the ventriloquist and his puppet, Scarface. But which one is the boss, and which one is the dummy? This is significant for a couple of reasons as a story. Not just the fact that it is the first appearance of the ventriloquist and Scarface. This is Alan Grant's first Batman story. Really? Yep. Came Look at right, that. Came right out of the gate with the ventriloquist and Scarface. And this is when he was co-writing with John Wagner, who he co-wrote a bunch of the 2000 AD stuff that they did in the UK before coming over to the States on this. And it's, I think Brayfogle started the issue before. This is very early in Brayfogle's Batman time as well. This would have picked up right after Mike Barr, who did all that stuff with Alan Davis in year two, and then a few others was the writer. And then there's a couple fill-ins and then... Grant begins his long-term runs on Detective into Batman into Shadow. Basically writing a monthly Bat title for a decade plus. Give or take. This is, uh, this is a very angry Batman. Yes. And it's a Batman where it's hitting a nerve. I think Batman in general reacts poorly when children are endangered. And I feel like this is is very much talking to its time as we've seen mm -hmm. grant do in the past this very much feels like it is talking to the crack crisis of the mid to late 80s oh absolutely this is very much just say no to drugs uh type stuff here and and i think a little bit of drug panic right it's this obsession with very young children doing drugs like oh you got a kid on fever and he was 10 years old and he lit a homeless man on fire a security guard on fire this is this is the worst thing i've ever seen uh, except for yeah uh, i saw an eight-year-old last week cut his mother's own fingers off to get her a purse yeah it's the kind of thing you read in the new york post absolutely and grant over the years gets a little more subtle about this stuff but here it's very loud and proud i actually read two of those new york post stories today 
the first was about a restaurant charging a $50 surcharge for anyone who puked during bottomless mimosas. And then uh, also a New York Post story on a woman uh, who knocked out her front teeth during bottomless mimosas. So the New York Post has something against bottomless mimosas, apparently. I, I think so. They are they're part of big orange juice. Okay. It's not just an angry Batman 2. It is a very noir narrating Batman. There's a lot of purple prose all over the place. Very much so. And we've seen with Grant, he keeps that up, but he knows, I think, a little better how to deploy it as we follow his career through the future. And the next story, especially. Yes. Now that I'm saying it, I'm kind of curious to see, I'm trying to see when Grant started writing or, you know, what became part of the comic scene in the UK. Actually, in the very late 70s, this is 2000 AD. This is Future Shocks in 2000 AD. That's his like first work is in 79. But then we see him doing a lot of 2000 AD through the 80s until he comes over here to the States. So yeah, I mean, he'd been doing this for a while, but also if you read that Dread stuff, it's also very purple. Dread is is dripping with that intense over the top narration and it's intentionally over the top because so many people forget Judge Dread is parody. <laughs> and as well, so the, so are the Ninja Turtles, Matt, and so was Lobo. But <laughs> often these things mutate into no pun intended at all into something a little more serious. But Dread is still intended to be a send-up of fascism. And This I think, guy's not a hero, dingbats. Exactly. But this story, the ventriloquist and Scarface, clearly uh, having read this in conjunction with the next story, were not fully baked when they were introduced here. Or at least Grant... Grant and Wagner, as they write the second story as well, reconsider and make changes to make the character a little more interesting as you get later appearances of them. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that with the next story. But here also, it is much more clear that the ventriloquist is just a person with dissociative personality disorder and. Scarface is just a part of him. We'll see questions about that, but I think here it's very clear he's just another Arkham candidate. Just a gimmick. Nothing supernatural to it. Right. Although I gotta say, I like a little bit of the uncertainty. Oh, absolutely. We'll definitely talk about that in the next story, but I love how that is up in the air in that next story. I think that's one of the things that makes that such a good story but he is a mobster and a drug kingpin here we're not dealing with kooky plants yeah this is not really a scarface story right this could be any gotham mobster right we could just plug in thorn or maroney or anybody yeah this was Grant and Wagner just creating something to be weird because you can do weird in a bat comic. Yeah. And probably thinking that Norm Brayfogle would have fun drawing this weird little guy with his puppet. But it's not until later when we get stuff like that return of Scarface story that we did with Vicky Vale or Nightfall with Sako, and then later where these become stories where it's about Scarface. And I think a lot of that comes from Wagner and Grant developing the origin and making him more than just a weird little guy with a puppet. Still a weird little guy with a puppet, though. Oh, he absolutely is a weird little guy with a puppet. The verbal tick, the, the G's for B's, is here from the beginning. Up to and including, did you notice that when Scarface is using the Tommy gun, the sound effect is gutta, 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 gutta? I did not notice that, but that's perfect. Yes. 
I thought that was a great, great little touch. And I, again, I, that's one of these things where diegetic sound effects sometimes are the penciler, sometimes are the letterer. So whether that was Bray Fogel or Adrian Roy, bravo. Kudos. I didn't research this as well, but I've got to think that Scarface's plan here about how to get his drugs out of Mexico into Gotham, that also strikes me as something that Grant saw, Grant or Wagner saw somewhere in a newspaper, whether it's not true or not, maybe it's an urban myth, but use it in a comic because the stuffing a corpse full of drugs and using that to transport across country lines that strikes me as a something you'd also see on some 80s cop show as well. I did Google Tijuana Tummy and all of my first all of my results like the first page were uh, tummy tucks in Tijuana. And let me tell you this, if anybody out there is thinking about a tummy tuck and Tijuana was advertising, you know, low low prices, I don't know if I'm price shopping I'm a firm believer in there are three things that you do not skimp on when it comes to cost. Surgery, home repairs, and the brakes on your car. Words to live by. Anything else in your car can go wrong if your brakes get out. Uh, the accents in Tijuana were... Oh, boy. My oh. goodness. Yeah, that was... You, that was not good and again very 80s the stereotypical mexican drug dealer drug cartel that's lifted again out of any number of movies and tv shows all i could think of is mcbain mendoza <laughs> hey isay little drugs hey eh? It's that bad. Yeah. So bad. It's awful. And you've also got a biker gang distributing the drugs for Scarface. Again, very 80s. Credit, Bray Fogle draws the hell out of that sequence of Batman infiltrating the stash house, making his way through it, taking out the different bikers or whatever they were. Bray Fogle already had it here and just gets better as his work progresses over the course of his time on Batman. I'm going to have to use charges to blow the doors. I've sworn I've never going to take a life. Someone's standing on the other side. Oh, well. Yeah, again, first Batman story. I think Batman writers have some time to realize that, that no kill rule means no kill. And he does jump out and save the one guy who wanders near the charges on his side of the door. So Grant and Wagner have that already in place. Mike Barr would have just let that door explode. We've seen that. The sequence when Batman gets exposed to the fever is not quite at scarecrow toxin levels, but the the reds and things, credit to the colorist on that. Oh, yeah. But it looks really good. Yeah, they were kind of racing to the finish at that point. I would have liked to see a little bit more from that sequence, but it was good times. I kind of feel like this story could have used another issue. Yeah, right? Like, it's just the one stash house and the funeral home. That's it. That's your big arc. This feels like it could have slash should have been subplots. You get an issue that introduces it, and then Scarface and the ventriloquist are a recurring sort of background threat for a while. But I will tell you, this run, Grant and Wagner introduce new villains regularly throughout the beginnings of their run. Because you get get the ventriloquist and Scarface here, then... Uh, I think Ratcatcher is next, and they introduce Ratcatcher. Then I think it's Cornelius Sturk. It's either Sturk or it's uh, the Corrosive Man and Cadaver, neither of whom. No, it's Corrosive Man and Cadaver next, neither of whom really become much of anything compared to Ventriloquist and Scarface, and even, as I said, Sturk and uh, Ratcatcher, who are both recurrings. 
And I mean, you get anarchy after a while. They spend a lot of time adding to the canon versus just using Batman's typical rogues. We don't get lots of Joker and Penguin stories. And of course, in here, by the the time they're off for a couple issues for that arc around 600, they also introduce Joe Potato. Joe Potato. Who we will be covering soon enough. And Film Freak. They introduced Film Freak in here. Still haven't gotten a Film Freak episode together. We'll, we'll get there. We will get there. And this ends on a much lighter note. I mean, we get a, a pretty fun little bit with Ventriloquist and Scarface in cuffs, in, in prison together, in a, a very much like funny little pin at the end of the story, which is fine. I don't know how tonally consistent it is with everything else, but Ventriloquist and Scarface do have a little comedic bit, which is accurate to them being a ventriloquist and his dummy. And again, uh, to go to the sound effect bit, gonk, gonk, gonk. Yep. Again, while these are not a fully baked version of this character, it is a good start and you can see why this is a character who stuck around it is a unique visual and that helps with a bat villain i think a bat villain who takes off needs a particular mo and a particular look and if you have one and not the other it doesn't necessarily work if you have one and not the other you get mr bloom Yes, exactly. Fascinating visual, MO and motivations that are vague. Yep. Don't know what he wants. Don't know who he is. And that was, I think that was supposed to be a selling point, right? Who is Bloom? Who is Bloom? You think Snyder ever had it in the back of his mind? Well, one day I'll do the origin story. One day. I don't think so. That strikes me as Snyder wanting that to be part of the character. It worked for Joker. I think it was playing on that nobody knows who the Joker is and revealing who he is would make him less interesting. But again, Joker has not just a great visual, but a motivation, an MO that stands with that lack of an identity. And there's there's one Joker. Yes. You can't make another one. If you are, it's shtick. It's, it's for a story. It is not, you know, we, there's a reason why we haven't covered three Jokers yet. And uh, if you want us to cover three Jokers, you have to pay us. Strikes back, how about to pay us? More White Knight, you definitely have to pay us. Mm-hmm. Master Race. Anything Frank Miller that we haven't covered already. Yeah. That, that's got to come through Patreon. All Star. Yeah. I don't have anything else here. Oh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 583-584 favor on the big board. We are at 321 stories on the big board. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50, we have a Savage Innocence, where the Joker takes on the powers of the Spectre. And still... Stuck at a sexy 69. It's Batman 588 to 590. Closed before striking. At 100 is My Own Worst Enemy, the first arc of Scott Snyder's All-Star Batman. At 150 is The Mightiest Team in the World, the origin of the Batman Superman team. At 200 is Death and the Maidens. At 250, we got Joker's Double Jeopardy, the first issue of the first Joker series. And all the way at the bottom, it's still Curse of the White Knight. Boo! Still October Frost, so it's still a spooky boo. I'm thinking this falls somewhere in the, the middle third. I don't think it quite makes the top half. Because looking at that, the top half right now is about 160. That's Batgirl Day 1, uh, first comic appearance of Harley. 
And even below that, you got uh, Batman 89 Shadows. Again, talking about a villain with a good visual and strong motivations. That incarnation of Two-Face is strong. And the ventriloquist isn't quite there at this point. We might disagree. And it's it's hard to do this at the beginning. I, I always like to rank the stories, you know, for each night. And to me, this is this is between. Uh, yes. this is this is the second story so we have to take care of tonight we got to take care of the list so one story is going to go higher one story is going to go lower so that's what i always again like to think about as i'm trying to place this first one up on the board i agree and i think we we are probably in agreement on which stories are placed otherwise stay tuned to find out i think this is below shadows this is below 89 okay 177 is the misfits that's another grant that's grant and sale that's the loser villains kidnap bruce wayne and the mayor and jim gordon oh that's a fun story that is it's a fuller baked story the end is a little weird in that it's suddenly like hey and here's the origin of chancer but the story itself is paced better it gets a little wonky in the third part but the first two parts are well paced and it's it's a better story Another Grant and Bray Fogel is the Mud Pack at 181, the three clay faces. That's too many clay faces, Matt. It is too many clay faces. Is this better than the, the multi-clay faces? I, I think so. All right. So that gives us somewhere between 177 and 181. That's a pretty narrow rank. Uh, War of Assassins at 179. The Rachel Ghoul versus the Sensei, the death of Kathy Kane, Batman and Bronze Tiger, winds up with that ending where the council of priests and ministers and religious people have gathered and the Sensei wants to create an earthquake to kill them all. Now you remember all of these things. Astounds me. It's a blessing and a curse. I- imagine if like the Batman part of your brain could be like, curing cancer what you what you could do with that it's only but fit I for batman but i don't want to cure cancer i want to talk <laughs> about batman uh, a pterodactyl man oh uh, if only man i'd be a pterodactyl man if i could be a pterodactyl man yeah right above that we have enter the outsiders the first batman and the outsiders story and i think that's probably better because that is also a two-part introduction of something but i feel like that handles the introduction better we get a better feel for the outsiders than we do for the ventriloquist and scarface here new 179 new 179 our second story is the secret origin of scarface this is showcase 94 numbers eight to nine the writers are alan grant and john wagner with art and colors by Teddy Christiansen, letters by Ken Brusenak, and edited by Neil Posner and Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are July to August of 1994. For the first time, learn the origin not only of the ventriloquist, but of Scarface, and a tale of crime, murder, and a puppet who may be more than just wood. We talked about it a little bit when we were talking about this before, but the ambiguity of whether or not so much of what's going on in this story is in the heads of the people who possess Scarface, or if Scarface is himself some kind of haunted supernatural thing, is part of what makes this such a good story. Agreed. It's obviously Prison Break story, but uh, the haunted puppet, is he haunted? And seeing seeing the gimmick come together and having it more or less finished at the end, it's, what, 40 pages? If that, it's, I think maybe even 30. Because I think it's, it's two 12 or 15 page shorts. Because for those out there who don't know, showcase the Showcase miniseries were anthologies. And the first two years, 93 and 94, was a Batman lead and then two sort of random DC character shorter pieces in the back. And we're only going to talk about the Batman stuff here because the other stuff does not matter for what we do in this podcast. I uh, know, but uh, the first 
story after this one was written by Eddie Braganza. So boo, Eddie Braganza. Yes, problematic creator. But as we are not talking about that story, I did not throw that in. But Vincent Quist and Scarface. Uh, let's let's start with the opening narration. The gallows had stood on Blackgate Rock for over a century. In that time, 313 men had danced like puppets on its unforgiving string. Killers, kidnappers, men of violence, the gallows saw them all and saw them off. God damn, Alan Grant. Yes. Take a, take a lap. That, that was good. Oh, that is so good. And we can see compared to the previous story, it was also kind of noiry and pulpy and purple. There's more of an economy of words in this. Yes, absolutely. And the fact that Scarface is a puppet carved from the wood of these gallows after they are struck by lightning, that is fucked up. At one point or another, I don't know what we had been watching on TV, but we'd been watching something Batman and Amber says something about Scarface being on there. And I tell her that and she looks at me and she's kind of like, her reaction was something effective. Well, of course, because it's Gotham. That's just the kind of shit they do. There was no argument with that because, yeah, this is Gotham and that's kind of the shit they do. The, the one weird note, though, that I would have been like, you don't you don't have to have that. Three days later, the death penalty's repealed. That was just that was weird. Yes. But you're kind of turning the uh, the knife in there, aren't you? But what we see here in the story is that Scarface was not carved by Wesker. And this is the first time, by the way, we learn the ventriloquist's real name. We learn his name is Arnold Wesker in this story, but that he was the the puppet of a different lifer. And he is sort of passed down to Wesker. And the question throughout this whole thing is as Woody, as he is called before, starts talking to Wesker. Is this because Wesker is breaking or is Scarface haunted? And it is never made clear. You can read it either way. And that's great. Yeah. And I like how the bit, the B's to G's bit, doesn't start until Wesker starts talking for Scarface. And I like that you get to that at the end. It's like, oh, the reason that that's that way is because he's not that good of a ventriloquist. Yeah. It's like, oh. Okay, because Donegan, who originally built Scarface, he got this book on ventriloquism and he had nothing else to do because he was a lifer. So he learned how to do it and he put in the time and Wesker just kind of gets the puppet and starts using it. So he's just not really that good a ventriloquist. I just I just want a puppet. I want a friend. You wonder in reading this, because he winds up in Blackgate because he says he accidentally killed someone in a bar fight. And as we go through this, you kind of wonder, was it really an accident? Or is that just what he says because he abhors violence? And in fact, he possibly, probably actually killed the guy and suffered a psychotic break. Yeah, I mean, Blackgate is not a minimum security prison, right? We are never given a full tour of the Gotham penal system, right? But we know that if you have some kind of mental disorder, you go to Arkham. If you're just a bad, bad dude, you go to Blackgate. And, I mean, there's got to be other places for people who aren't, you know, Great White Shark before he becomes Great White Shark. Your white-collar guys have got to go somewhere. Your petty thieves and criminals have to go somewhere. They don't automatically all go to Blackgate. So in my mind, if you go to Blackgate, that's the maximum security place. You did something bad. So to my mind, I read that. It's like, okay, Wesker was in a bar, and somebody said something to him, and he snapped and probably took a corkscrew to their eyes. Yeah, that is pretty much how I read it. But then afterwards, he's like, no, no, it was an accident, I swear. And yeah, he, he fell might... on my corkscrew 17 <laughs> times. He... And then he ran into my knife. 
he ran into my knife eight times. I, I think that's literally what he says, right? He ran into my knife. Something like that. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think he's lying. I don't think he's saying what actually happened, but I think in his head, he is telling the truth. He believes that. Whether or not it is factual based on what anyone else saw is a different question. But it was an accident. He just walked onto my knife. Now I'm doing life for a crime I didn't mean to commit. Yeah, you don't get life for manslaughter. Yeah, that's not the way that works. Killing a man in a bar fight. No, you mean you get you might get 20 to life, but you don't just get life. That is somebody spilled a beer on him. He said something. I'm you know, big guy kind of shook him and then he just broke a bottle and just stabbed the guy with the bottle over and over and over again until there was no blood left in it. And see, the great thing When Tom King comes along, does his nine-panel grid retelling of the origin of Scarface, we'll get to see all of that. Because Tom King has never met a story that he would not tell in gratuitous detail. Oh, of course. And again, as we said with this story, this story is told in the details that aren't there. That we can suppose what Wesker did. We can question whether or not Scarface is haunting Donegan and then Wesker. Or if they're both just people who broke and the puppet is how they're dealing with that. Because Donegan himself, Scarface is talking through him and saying things that Donegan doesn't necessarily want out there. You don't know. Is that the haunting of the puppet? Or is Donegan just been locked up for a decade plus and is starting to lose it? And, and I like how Scarface says Donegan is starting to lose it. He has his, he's look, yeah, he built this escape tunnel, but now he's too chicken to use it because he's become institutionalized. He's afraid of the outside world. You got to take me outside, Wesker. We got to go. You're my ticket out of here. You get to the end, and when Wesker is making his escape, you absolutely see how ruthless he can be. Because even though he's like, oh no, I abhor violence. When he needs to kill two guards to get to the boathouse, to get the boat to get out. Yeah, Scarface is egging him on, but he takes that shotgun and he kills those two guards with little to no compunction. Oh, he hangs Donegan. Mm-hmm. And doesn't let him down after he realizes, oh, I didn't kill him by beating him with a brick. He's still alive. And it's always Scarface telling him these things. So if you're going with the mental illness argument, Scarface is granting him the excuse to do these terrible things because he's not doing it himself. It's Scarface who's telling him to do it. But you also could believe he is a haunted ass dummy who is telling him to do these things. And Wesker is just a weak little man because Donegan seemed to have fought back. Wesker immediately is like, yes, Mr. Scarface. We've said it before when we've seen different things where it's like, did we really need the explanation for that little detail? That's dumb. But I like the origin of the scar that gives him the name Scarface. Well, yeah, that'd be the one thing I'd want to know. Donegan woke up while Wesker was trying to make his escape with Scarface, came at him with a shiv, and it got Scarface instead, which pushes Donegan even further off the, the deep end. And this is all aided by Teddy Christiansen's art. Duh, it's perfect. This blocky, shadowy, at times stuff that looks to me like woodcuts. But in Wesker's facial expressions, you get so much. So much with so little. It so works with what they're doing in this story. Do you have anything else? Aside from it's uh, really good... And was a really fun read that I really enjoyed. No, I don't have anything else. One of the few stories that are on here that there is no mention of Batman. 
this does violate that, but it's in Gotham. So it still counts. We've expanded to stories that have to do with Gotham. So uh, the territorial waters of Gotham. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I like the other bit, the, the end where when they're making their escape, where do they get the gangster outfits? But they break into a theatrical costuming shop. That explains why they're quirky clothes. I kind of would have liked a follow-up somewhere. We find out why Rhino is so loyal to the ventriloquist and Scarface. Because we always see Rhino there at their beck and call. And we never quite know what it was that Scarface did that made this big lug his, you know, loyal right-hand retainer. But that also might be a story that doesn't need to be told. You just kind of be like, okay, he's his right-hand man and that's that. Look, if you cross Scarface, he will shoot you. That is true. I would be loyal to that. We we see him bump off how many of his hoods? He might be second only the Joker in treating his henchmen as disposable. Yeah, if if the exit interview is with a bullet, I'm going to make sure that I don't get to the exit interview. There. With that point well taken, I think it's time for Showcase 94, number 8 and 9. Only those first two stories, the secret origin of Scarface on the big board. Do we think this cracks the top 100? Ooh, what is the top 100 now? One uh, is my own worst enemy, the Two-Face, the Scott Snyder, John Romita Two-Face story. And let's see, right in that area... You know, we got Batman TMNT Volume 1 at number 103, A Bullet for Bullock at 109, Doomsday Book at 116, Batman the Spirit 113, Batman versus Predator number 1 at 91. So to get into the top 100, or at least to get in the area, they don't have to be the best books of all time. Our, they- our list is getting long, but they, you know, they do have to be good. Yes. I think we are... I'm just trying to look. Okay, well, here's a question. 83, The Return of Scarface. It's Grant and Brayfogle. It's the Vicky Vale, Bruce Wayne, the new reporter that loved Triangle story. I, it, it's not going to beat that because that there's something very inherent about Batman, about Bruce struggling with his feelings for Vicky Vale. There's some great stuff with Jim and Sarah and Bruce looking at that relationship. So it's not going to beat that. But it's not in a different league than that story. I think we're probably between the mid-90s and the mid-one-teens. Because just thinking about it, Robin dies at dawn at 97. That does so much with such little real estate and has that whole weird, dark Batman feeling suicidal, Batman feeling like he needs to give up being Batman. And for a story from when that came out, it's an impressive piece of work. And Absolutely. this is very cool and very interesting, but it doesn't quite do that. I'd say my floor is Batman TMNT at 103. Yeah, I can I can see that somewhere between ninety seven and one oh three. That is the new one oh two sound. I like one oh one madness, the second lobe sale, uh Legends of the Dark Knight, Halloween, the one with the Mad Hatter, and the the triple narrative of Bruce, Jim, and young Babs. I have a, a soft spot for that particular story. I think there's some cool stuff. And the Christiansen art here is great, but Tim Sale at that 90s part of his career is really gorgeous. Absolutely. New 102 it is. Okay. Oh, the one thing that I did want to just call out by the by but that I forgot to mention, this just for the placement in the timeline, this is taking place right towards the end of the night trilogy this is coming out right at the end of night's end so we're still at a point where there hasn't been it hadn't been a ton with this character it had been the first story the return of scarface and the stuff in nightfall so this i think helps springboard the ventriloquist and scarface 
into being more key to the rogues gallery because of just how cool the stuff that they do here and that weird creepy ambiguity we need to get back to nightfall we do we need to do night quest and night quest the crusade stuff and night's end we definitely do but we're not doing that for the rest of the night no we got one of those uh their one-offs to figure out take care of this is double talk is detective comics volume one number 827 The writer is Paul Dini, with pencils by Don Kramer, inks by Wayne Foucher, colors by John Callis, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Michael Seglane and Peter Tomasi. Cover date is March of 2007. Booby-trapped dummies and mannequins have Batman thinking that Scarface is back. But wasn't Arnold Wesker, the ventriloquist, killed by the Great White Shark? Batman must figure out whose strings Scarface is pulling now. Matt's speechless, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna go for this. I am 65% sure after reading this that Paul Dini has a daddy kink. 65% sure. I'm not willing to go any higher, but 65% sure. I was sitting back and reading this one, and I was up until the very end, kind of gonna be at a place where I thought we I might have to defend some of Dini's choices in here. <laughs> I thought, you know, sexy lady with the crotchety ventriloquist dummy is a shtick. That's an established mm-hmm. thing. So I was not willing to go with the, oh, this is just another example of Dini's weird issues with women until the last page with <laughs> Scarface. And then I was like, oh, she's calling him daddy. And hey, yeah. not yucking anybody's yum. No. You do your thing. No issues with that. But the out of nowhere calling the dummy daddy was like, okay. And then very much they're having sex now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That... Like, like, like it would be one thing if it was a scene in the club where she's like, daddy treats me right. Like that has kind of a noir feel to it. Uh, but clearly in the context of sex. Right. I mean, he calls her sugar. There's a sugar daddy thing right there. Again, up until that last page, <laughs> it could be a noir trope and not a weird sex thing. Mm-hmm. And then you get to that last page. It's like, oh, no, she's fucking the dummy. Yeah, It's a weird sex thing. She has a closet full of them, which seems to violate the haunted puppet thing. But you also could argue that at this point, if there is some kind of spirit, it doesn't need the original puppet anymore, that it has taken on a a presence of its own. Oh, shit. I missed that panel where she has a closet of Scarfaces. Oh, yeah. She's got a whole closet of Scarfaces. And they are all identical. Yes. Huh. Look at that. So this is a few months after Face the Face, where Wesker died. So we are in this early Dini period. This is a few issues after Night of the Penguin, which was the first time we saw Mr. Z and Little Italy who pop up back here. Again, Dini really went out of his way to try to create a bunch of new low-tier Batman villains, most of whom never caught on. The Carpenter is about the only one that Dini created in this period who continues to show up. But she's a neat idea. She builds the layers for supervillains. That's a cool idea. I think a narcoleptic and a man with dwarfism who's Italian, less interesting conceit there. Yes. Uh, so tell me about this new ventriloquist. What do we know about her? She only shows up a few more times. There is a two-parter later on that gives us her origin. And we saw her once before in something that takes place after this. I'm about to break a rule that you put in, but you asked the Uh question. I did ask the question. Remember Heart of Hush? The flashbacks. Oh, no. The flashbacks in Heart of Hush to the woman who was the daughter of the mobster who Tommy was dating. Is this her? Yeah. That's weird and bad. I don't like that. 
when we read the two-parter that is her origin when she comes back with Zatanna, it's a two-parter with Zatanna. Oh, Christ. You can Fucking see, Paul Dany. I would be curious if he had the stuff with Heart of Hush in mind when he created her, or if he sort of retconned that as like, oh, I have this character who was a mobster's daughter, affluent Gotham. I need a femme fatale for my Hush story. Why don't I combine the two characters? And I need her to, I suppose, get shot at some point. I think that's the stuff that we learn in the origin story. Mm. I think right before Heart of Hush, because it's it's Dustin Nguyen art, and Nguyen takes over not too long before Heart of Hush. I think the concept, if you remove that last page, again, <laughs> the, the quote-unquote you know sexy dame with the ventriloquist dummy, is a neat visual and a nice inversion of the Wesker and Scarface visual, where there you have the nebbishy guy and the mobster. Here you've got the mall and the mobster in sort of one package. I think it is a cool idea until it becomes a weird sex thing. She looks an awful lot like Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, there is a <laughs> definitely. I mean, up to and including the hair over the one eye. Yeah, it is a very Jessica Rabbit look. Thirty-five percent sure Danny's got a thing for Jessica Rabbit. Oh, I would go higher on that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, who doesn't have a thing for Jessica Rabbit? Precisely. Uh, you know, it could it could be the artist, right? Or it could be the notes of the script. Hey, I want her to look like Jessica Rabbit. She's a blonde Jessica Rabbit. Go. <laughs> I think it was an interesting choice to make her a more competent second to Scarface than Wesker ever was. Yeah. This is a, a woman who can clearly scheme and plot and is a better ventriloquist. And suddenly out of nowhere is maybe not out of no out of nowhere for the reader. When Scarface is confronting Little Italy, he starts speaking fluent Italian. So it's like, okay, this is someone who has their own stuff going on. It's not just, yes, Mr. Scarface, as Wesker was. Peyton is the character, is her real first name. Peyton was a force to be reckoned with on her own before she fell under the sway of Scarface. Does that two-part story explain how she has a closet full of Scarfaces? I am not sure off the top of my head. It's been a while. That's so weird. What do you think about Lefty here? He's no Matches Malone. Not well, I mean, who could be a Matches Malone? I think it's a decent secondary criminal altar for Batman. Once Matches is getting there's a little too much heat on Matches, it's like, all right, I'll start doing this. And the fact that he's building a spy camera into the prosthetic left hand. Hey, he's Batman. If you're going to have some sort of like prosthesis going on, of course, it's going to have gadgets in it because he's Batman. Uh, let me correct you there, Matt. His prosthetic hand is right. Right. Yes. Yes. The minute you went, I was like, oh, crap, I got that backwards. He's lefty because he has his left hand. Mm hmm. And, and I like how Scarface specifically calls him out. It's like, mighty easy to fake a hook hand, ain't it, Lefty? You get, again, an introduction to a bunch of these sort of second-tier hoods here who get, like, names. And as far as I know, none of them really show up again. Uh, you're going to dig deep, and you're going to find me every story where Corn Fed makes an appearance. Corn Fed, Corn. the Rube villain. Yes. I chief, you're like a cousin to me. It's Gomer Pyle in Gotham. Uh, delightful. Credit to Dini for at least trying to create all of these new characters. Most of them didn't take off, but you're like a cousin to me. A cousin who I've been kissing. Oh, wait, no, I didn't mean that, Mr. Scarface. Wait, I, I ain't saying I wouldn't kiss you, though. You're handsome. 
but I'm not going to kiss her. No, she's your gal. Cornfed is now bisexual. You're welcome, <laughs> DC Comics. I also got to say, the uh, fact that Sugar and Scarface here dug up Wesker. It's fucked up, Matt. Yeah, that is seriously fucked up. I'm now curious to see if we can do a Batman and Zatanna episode. Without doing a Deanie story? Yeah. There's at least one story I can think of, but we have that one booked for another episode because it's also Constantine and we ha- I- I'm planning a Constantine episode. And yes, I pronounce it the Alan Moore way, but still, he created the character and said it's pronounced Constantine. So, uh, graphic interchange file, Matt. What is it? Yes, GIF. Okay, all right. I, look, I just wanted to make sure because oh, it was going to be any, anything yes. else. I would quit. No, that's a GIF. This would have been the final episode. But here's the thing. The reason why I'm spe- I specifically do that is, is that there are appearances with Etrigan and other characters speaking in rhyme with that character's name. And the rhyme scheme only works if it's pronounced Constantine. It's Constantine then. But you can argue with the multiverse that the you know various animated series and Legends of Tomorrows and things where it's pronounced Constantine, that's how it's pronounced on that Earth. um prime earth if you're going with the alan moore who created him and who and marv wolfman who used the character in titans around crisis the rhyming stuff only works if it's pronounced constantine and look alan moore is such a cranky old man can't you give him this one thing this (laughs) one thing they're gonna keep using the watchmen characters i can't do anything about that but i can pronounce that character's name constantine but yeah i'm trying to think we could probably do some Justice League stories, but I'm sure most of the times Batman has met Zatanna has been under the pen of Paul Dini. Uh, of course. Probably most of the Zatanna stories have been from Paul Dini. Maybe not most. Uh, a sizable number. Anything from the early aughts through the beginning of the New 52, yes. The Vertigo one shot, her ongoing, all the stuff in Detective. Yep. Deeny, 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 Deeny. Last thing I have to say about this is that, right? So they they dig up Wesker's corpse, they dump him on stage, and then we got this one panel that cuts to the, the audience of goons, and they have shocked faces, right? Like, oh my God. Lefty, though, sitting there with a stone face. You know, he's Batman. He's how many crime scenes has he walked in on that the Joker was involved in? Corpse on stage is Tuesday. Oh yeah. One thing I noted that made me chuckle, and since we've already taken one shot at him, I'm gonna take another right here. The opening sequence, something's been leaked to the cops that Catwoman is being chased by gun-wielding thugs at a building on Commerce and Nash. You know how nice it was to hear a street name in Gotham that is not the name of creators? That was nice. Yeah. Wow, this is clearly not a comic written by Tom King because that would be the corner of Robinson and Brayfogle if it was a Tom King comic. I liked the use of the Iceberg Lounge as the place where Scarface is having his sort of coming out party. But I also like that we're at this point where Penguin is pretending to be legit. And so it's got this sort of, oh, he's he's putting on the pretense. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's how the Penguin works best. When he has the pretense of being a legitimate man of business... But everyone knows he's dirty as hell. Oh, yeah. He keeps two sets of books. Two? I would say at least three. I don't know what the third is for, but he, he's keeping as many sets of books as he possibly can. All right. So, so the first set is just completely fabricated, fraudulent. Like if he was following every single law that ever was if he was going 110 percent to actually follow the law and then somebody says all right come on no you're fucking you're full of shit 
And then he brings them. Okay. Okay. These are the real books. And it's like, say 65% crime. We got you now, Pangy. And then the real books are like just 110% crime. The real books are where he keeps like the stuff he really doesn't want to talk about. Like the 65% that's got the gambling in there. That's got the less sensitive prostitution. <laughs> like he doesn't have like the mayor's name in that set of books. No, no. The mayor and the councilman are in the third set of books. Exactly. That's where that is. That's where the, the gun running is in those books. That's the stuff that you do hard time for versus the white collar stuff that's in the second set of books. There we go. If I'm going down, you're all going down with me. I think that does it, though, for this. Yes. Uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics in Ray 27. Double talk on the big board. First question. Yes. We'll start here. Night of the Penguin, or as you like to call it, Why Won't Paris Hilton Fuck Me, is at 211. This is much better than that, because that book is gross. Heart of Hush is at 199. Heart of Hush is longer, so this is better than that. <laughs> okay. I think Heart of Hush is more ambitious. Trying to do something with Hush, that's trying. Heart of Hush has more hush, so <laughs> it is less good. Okay, fair. This book, this book has no hush. All right, so moving up. Well, we already said it's not better than Fever at 180. So we're in between 180 and 199. Come to you on the day of your 15th wedding anniversary, and I say to you, I could not put this book of uh, Blades at 195. No, I honestly think it might go right above Heart of Hush. Because above that is, is another Deanie, Deanie and Burnett, Mayor Mayhem. And Mayor Mayhem's longer, but Mayor Mayhem does a good job with those three issues. Yeah, and those are those are adventures continue issues. They're yeah. they're those go down easy. Yeah. So I think this is the new 199. All right, perfect. All right, and that does it for tonight. Next week, well, that would be telling. Ooh. We have something a little different, and you're just going to have to tune back in to find out. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam, Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubas, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorny! For their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you'd like to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at comicsxf.com or at comicsxf on Twitter for our weekly Friday Batchat roundup of new bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.